Well, this morning I need a little help from you guys, uh, and also Angel is going to help me today. So come up here, buddy. This is uh, Angel. I don't know if you met this guy, but he's a pretty cool dude, and today is his birthday. How about that? And so, yeah. And so uh, he volunteered the other day at the coffee shop to help me. And so he's going to just run out there and fetch something for me from the uh, audience. Say, look, put this guy on camera. Is he on camera? Right? Zoom in on this guy. It's a handsome young man right here. But uh, do, does anyone have a coin in your pocket from, let's say, the 90s? Look, guys, check your pocket. See if what, I'm, I'm going to find the oldest coin in the room, all right? So anybody have one from the 90s? Raise your hand if you got one from the 90s. I'll give you a second. I don't know if he, oh, who has one? Sean. Sean, what year is yours? 1920. I don't think anybody's going to be that. Anybody have something older? You just happen to random get that at change at the convenience store or something? All right, will you run and get Sean's coin, bring it up here. I promise I'll return it. Let me see how fast you can move there on L. Is this uh, something significant to you, this uh, penny? Or is it a coin? What coin is it? Okay, a dollar. All right, so I wanted you to look at this uh, coin, and you stay here for a second because we're going to return this to him because it's, since it's a, such a nice coin. But here's a coin that's been in circulation for a long time, right? 101 years, if I'm doing the math correctly. And you can see, if, if I don't know if the camera can get on this or not, but this thing has a lot of wear and tear. Even if you pulled out one from the 80s or 90s, which most people, those aren't in circulation anymore, you see it and you see that even a coin a few years old has a lot of flaws. There's a lot of just damage done just in the normal life and circulation. Well, let me show you something else here, all right? This is a proof set from 1976, and this is coins as they were idealized, I guess, made straight off the mint, and as they were, before they're ever put into circulation, this is as close to perfect as you can get for a coin, okay? So, so this is a coin that has been marred, and it's, it's, the image has been damaged. This is a coin as it's meant to be coming off the press. It, it, obviously, it's not going to stay that way. Everybody knows that. And the reason I show that to you, because I want you to think about this illustration for a second, all right, I want you to think about a coin as the way that we were created in the image of God. Through the fall, through Adam, through the destruction that happened through his sin in the garden, him, him and Eve, the image of God, although it's still possessed by every single human being, it's been marred and disfigured by sin. So everyone has been created. God said on the last day of creation, he said, let us create man in our image, in our likeness. And so God created every single person in God's likeness. But through sin, it's kind of like you can see this is definitely a coin, and this is taken some wear and tear, but you can still see the image that this is definitely a coin, but it nowhere compares to, to the idealized version of that. So think of, keep that illustration in mind. Thanks. Run that back to him. I doubt he's going to let you. Give him a hand. Give on hell a hand for, for me there. Sometimes we think in the Bible that miracles and angels and these things are just everyday occurrences, but these things are very rare, and these are very unique, and it's not every day that you see an angel. So she knows something's going on here, right? Something supernatural is happening. This is not the work of a grave robber, because, and angels, because they're spiritual beings, normally we don't see them. Scripture talks a lot about angels. It'd be an interesting study just to do a talk about angels, because we know that angels are around believers. They help protect 
and God uses them in our lives. Pretty amazing stuff. But most of the time, angels are not seen, but Scripture tells us that sometimes angels become visible. And this is what we have here. And if you carefully look at our text, you'll see where are the angels sitting at? Look at the verse, verse 12. They're sitting where the body of Jesus had been there, his grave clothes still there. One is at the head and one is at the feet of Jesus. All right? So the angels are positioned there. Is this just a detail that John tells us that just he happens to just throw in there? Well, let me show you a picture and then think about this. Put the picture on the screen for me. Uh, um, will you, of the ark. This is the Ark of the Covenant. And if you look at the Ark of the Covenant, what do you see there? You see two angels sitting on each side of what's called the mercy seat. Let me read a verse to you from Exodus chapter 25. Where God instructed Moses, he said, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and you shall make two cherubim, that's a type of angel of gold, of hammered work, shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. So the mercy seat was the golden lid placed at the top of the Ark of the Covenant in the holies of holy behind the veil where the presence of God was manifested during the time of the temple and during the time of Jesus. But it was into the holies of holies that the high priest would go once a year and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people for a year. And so every year, this would have to be redone over and over and over again. So do you think it's just John was just providing the details here, and they really didn't have any reason, it was just point, pointless information that they were sitting in this way? No, this was definitely intentional, and it was a picture for us of the mercy seat and the fact that now it is finished, Jesus is the atonement for the people of God. It is his blood that covers our sins. Through the cross, God takes away our sins. Through the resurrection, God gives new life in him. What a picture. And we see John do this throughout. Remember, the whole purpose of John writing this book is, hey, for you to believe, I want to show you that this is credible. I'm a witness to it. I'm writing to it. And what happened really happened, and there are some amazing supernatural things that happened, and John wants to tell us these things. And so the, the whole scene of the resurrection, John is painting a picture for us. He shows us these angels sitting here. Jesus is the atonement for our sin. No more sacrifices. The sacrificial system finished. The Jews didn't able, weren't able to get this until about 70 years after Christ was born because that's when the Romans came and destroyed the temple, and so no more sacrifices could be offered, but Jesus was the ultimate and final sacrifice. No more need to sacrifice. He is the atonement for our sin. And so knowing the facts of the resurrection, and some of us can get kind of excited about apologetics, which means just defending the faith, knowing about the faith, the details of the faith. I said this last week, knowing the facts of the resurrection are important, but it's not enough. The Bible tells us the meaning of the resurrection, that Jesus he atoned for our sins. His life was validated. He, he, God showed he was who he said he was by raising him from the dead. And listen, the devil is doing everything he can to blind people's eyes to the truth of the gospel. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Satan, 
who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news or the gospel. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God, all right? He is the exact likeness, the exact imprint of God. And so Satan is working to blind the eyes of people so they don't understand or know the gospel. As simple as it is that Christ atoned for our sins. John said this in 1 John. He said he's the propitiation for our sin. That means he's the once for all sacrifice. All right? He fully covers. Atonement means temporarily appeasing God. This means God says through Jesus Christ, he looks at your life, if your faith is in Christ, and he says, I accept you because of Jesus. Fully accepted, fully loved, nothing to do or earn. God says you're justified through Christ and Christ alone. Satan is working over time to deceive people with this. I've talked about this before, but let me just remind you of this, how confused people are about the gospel. Many people, and some maybe even sitting right here in this room, you hear the gospel, the simple gospel story, again and again and again, but you still you can't articulate it, and you struggle with sometimes the details of it. I ask people sometimes, you know, hey, you know, are, are you a believer? And I'm like, I'm hope I, can get, I hope I get into heaven one day. All right, hope. They're not saying, like, Jesus is my hope. They're saying, like, I hope that I earn enough or do enough or I've done enough to get into heaven. These are people who know God's word. People sometimes get confused. You know, it's, it's this hodgepodge of effort and grace. And Jesus says, it's finished. It's by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift of God. And so another way that Satan works to deceive people is he gets people, all right, look at me, saved and all these people who get saved, a lot of people who get saved, one is like, I want a ticket to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. And so I need Jesus in order to get that. But truthfully, I don't need Jesus or want Jesus at all. Let me illustrate. I overheard, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is what I overheard. If you told me this, remind me later. But I overheard or somebody told me that there was a golf tournament in a neighboring city uh, recently. And a couple guys, when they were paired up for this tournament, one of the local pastors was paired up with them, all right? And so as they were driving around with the pastor and stuff, you know, they put on their best, their, their best front, you know, and acted pretty good. And, and the pastor, something happened, he got a call or something, and he had to cut out early. And as soon as he left, these guys, like, they stopped and got their alcohol, and all of a sudden they were like, they were literally like, oh, yeah, pastor's gone, man. Well, we can relax, we can have fun now, right? And this is not an indictment on, on drinking alcohol. This is just a point that they were acting different when the pastor was there, but they were relieved of the fact that the pastor was gone because they could have fun then, right? They could enjoy themselves then. All right? Think about Jesus. You've got Jesus if you're a believer, but people who don't want Jesus around, they don't want the pastor around. They sure don't want Jesus around, right? And if you don't want Jesus being with you, that's a problem because in Christ, Jesus is with you. The Holy Spirit is in you and with you. And so to say, to say I, I'd, I'd like to leave Jesus out of parts of my life is a serious issue at the heart of your salvation experience because you should not only want Jesus, you should delight in Jesus. Jesus should be your everything and progressively growing to be more and more in that image, in that likeness. You should desire to be around people who are believers because they help you grow in that image of your creator God. But to say, you know, I just want Jesus sometimes and not other times, or around certain friends and not around other friends, 
That's a real issue that you really need to consider and question. Why do you not delight yourself in Jesus? Because salvation is about receiving Jesus. And he is, it's a, eternal life is a person. And the person is Jesus Christ. It's not a destination. It's a person. So Jesus paid for our sins. Christ is the mercy seat. There in and through Christ, God meets us. We've been justified, and as we'll see in a minute, believers have been adopted into God's family, and he is working to recreate his image within you. Verse 13, they said to her, woman, the angel said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And so all of Mary has got to understand something unique and supernatural is going on in her grief. She can only still focus on the fact that Jesus' body is gone. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Why did she not know it was Jesus? Well, we learned it was early in the morning. Also, she's distressed, she's weeping, could be blurred eyes and tears in her eyes. We don't know how far away Jesus was when this was going on as he was walking toward her. She's overwhelmed and concerned for the body of Jesus. She's focused on that. Whatever the reason is, Mary does not recognize Jesus at this point. In verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And so he says this to her. She doesn't recognize him. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried away him away, tell me where have you laid him, and I will take him away. So we learn back in chapter 19 that Jesus' tomb was in a private garden. And so maybe she surmised that Jesus was the gardener who was caring for the tombs. Again, whatever the reason, we don't know. She assumes that he's the gardener. But Jesus, in verse 16, she says his name, her name. Jesus says, Mary. At that point, she recognizes who Jesus is, whether it's the tone of his voice, the fact that the way Jesus pronounced it, but she's ecstatic to realize at this moment that Jesus, who was dead, is alive, all right? Jesus, who was dead, is alive. Everybody thought that he was gone. He was dead. This was it. Story over. Nobody connected the dots. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Jesus talked to them about this. They didn't get it. It wasn't in their perspective. It wasn't in their worldview, the fact that Jesus would rise again in this time period, they thought it was somewhere down the road in the future at the end of time. And so she's alive. Mary sees her. She responds. I'm sure she's confused, but she responds in Aramaic, Rabbani, teacher, teacher. And the emotional impact of this moment cannot be stressed too much. Can you imagine her emotions, her feelings? In response to seeing Jesus alive, there's no doubt, much like we've seen the women throughout the Gospels, I'm sure she fell at his feet. She sprawled herself out before Jesus, grabbing hold of his ankles and crying and weeping and celebrating with joy. That's why Jesus more than likely responded in verse 17, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. I don't think Jesus is scolding her, her, don't touch me, woman. He's not doing that. He's not getting upset with her, I don't believe. Later in this chapter, we'll see 
that Jesus invites Thomas to touch him. So this is not about a touching thing. I think what we see here is Jesus is saying, look, you cannot cling to me. I'm not staying here. This is not about me permanently being here with you. I've got a job for you to do, so don't detain me, Mary. I've got a job. We've got to spread the word because I will be, look at 17, I am ascending to the, my Father. I'll be going back to the Father. Here's your job, Mary, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father. So ultimately, Jesus will be returning to God. So he urges Mary to run to the disciples, to go back to the disciples and tell them, I've just seen Jesus, right? I've seen Jesus. And that's exactly what Mary does in verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he has said these things to her. And he repeated what Jesus had told her. She announces to the disciples, Jesus. And what a remarkable role Mary has, not only discovering the empty tomb, but she's also a witness at the cross. She saw Jesus dead. She's the first to discover the tomb. She's the first to talk to Jesus and see Jesus after the resurrection. And now she's the first to commission to go and to tell the disciples. How will they respond to Mary? However they respond to what she tells them. We'll see that next week. But I want you to go back to verse 17 again, and we'll finish with this. I hope you got it when we went through it. You may have missed it, what Jesus was saying here. Something very unique and special. He said, in response, he said, Don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. The way Jesus is wording this is very illuminating. Nowhere in the Gospels did Jesus personally address God as our Father collectively. Now, in the Lord's Supper, I mean, I'm sorry, in the Lord's Prayer, he did teach the disciples to pray our Father, but nowhere did he collectively refer to him as our Father, and nowhere did he say our God. The usage of our Father is unique and special. The usage of our God is unique and special. And also, this is the first time in the Gospels that brothers is used for his disciples. All right, that may not be a big deal for you, but that's a big deal for me because nowhere else in the Gospels is brothers used except for those who are biologically related. And so something significant new has changed here. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. Things have changed and Mary, as well as the disciples, have become members of the family of God. God has invited them in a unique and special way into the family of God. So Mary isn't just to go announce the resurrection of Jesus and the forthcoming ascension of Jesus. She is declaring the fulfillment of all the things that Jesus taught. She is declaring the inauguration and the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything that Jesus did on the cross and through the resurrection has been accomplished, and Mary is testifying to that. The image of God which was lost in the Garden of Eden has been regained in Jesus, ironically, in a garden, right? What was lost by Eve in the garden through her deception to the snake, now we see reclaimed in Jesus, and he gives this information to the woman in the garden. So it's God's justice satisfied. Jesus has paid the full price for our sins, and he's 
given us the possibility to know the righteousness of Jesus Christ and to begin to be restored into the image of God because we've been adopted into his family. This adoption that we begin to take on the characteristics of our father and our brother, Jesus. Paul said it this way, be imitators of God as dearly loved children, as little children, and live a life of love, just as Christ has loved us and given himself for us. So we imitate our Father. And yes, imitation often involves effort and work, but you know, imitation oftentimes just, I'm, I know God, he's in me, the Holy Spirit lives in me, and so I begin to progressively taking on more and more the life of Christ within me. More and more, I'm restored, being restored to this condition. Not fully yet, we'll never get met condition on this earth. We won't arrive on this earth. But one day, we will. But until then, Jesus is working on you and working on me to conform us to the image of Jesus. So the gospel, the gospel is not just, yeah, I want Jesus because hell sounds like a terrible place and heaven, like, that's the best alternative. But Jesus may not sound that good to you. Jesus is offering himself and to change you into his likeness. And here's the, the truth. The only hope for wholeness is in Christ. The image of God. Humanity can be mended nowhere else. Those pains, those hurts, those anxieties, those fears, that depression, never be fully conquered apart from Jesus Christ. Because you're not whole. And Jesus is the only one who can restore that wholeness. And not only does he begin to do that process, but this family connection, this family dynamic that exists is talked about throughout Scripture. And I wanted to narrow it down to one, which is Romans 8, 15 and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to go back into fear. Why would you do that? But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It's amazing what God has done and is doing in our hearts. And so the truth of the gospel, the truth of the cross and the resurrection, changes us from the inside out, and we conform to the image of Jesus. And we have Abba, Father, a special relationship with God the Pharisees and the leaders of Judaism did not understand. They didn't call God Father. That wasn't done in that day. Jesus came on the scene and said, Father. And now he says, Our Father. Our Father. Abba Father. This special relationship with him. So what are you going to do about it? The hands application. Become who you are through the Spirit working through you through the disciplines of grace. The Spirit works in a powerful, mysterious way. But there's in a way that we join him in that work. It's not a let go and let God sanctification. It's I'm joining the Spirit in this work of sanctification. I get up and make the effort to be in my Bible every day because I need to hear from God. I need to talk to my Abba Father. I want to talk to my Abba Father. I want to know my brother Jesus. I want to have his life more and more coming out of my life. I want to 
feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit in my life. I want to know those areas where there's still flaw and damage and, and scarring and, and it's messed up and it doesn't reveal the image of God the way that it should. And the Holy Spirit points that out and God in His supernatural way begins to clean that up and to change that. And we begin to reflect God more and more like a mirror reflects a face. We reflect the image of God. And people see the glory of God. They don't look at us and say how great we are. They look at us and we say how great our God is and they say, you're right. Because you're not that great, right? I'm not. I struggle. It's hard. It takes effort. It takes community. It takes bringing people, inviting people into our lives for intentionally intrusive accountability and relationships. It invites people to say, help me out here. I need help. I'm blind to what I can't see, right? I can't see what I can't see. I need you to join me in this process. So that takes work and effort. How about you? Is the Spirit working in you? Is He crying out within you, Abba, Father, and the Spirit Himself bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God? If that's the case, embrace what God's doing through the Holy Spirit in Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the story of the resurrection, the amazing account that John gives us of the mercy seat and the beautiful picture of the fact that you atone for our sins once for all. It's settled. No more sacrifices. No more coming and, and, and giving a priest a sacrifice so that atonement can be made, but it's been done. It's finished in Jesus. And God, I thank you that we're your brother. And Father, you are our Abba Father. And that we can come to you. And there's more power there than we can ever realize or imagine. And Father God, I pray that we'll embrace all that you are for all our lives so we can reflect you more and more each and every day. And in that we find our purpose, we find wholeness, we find joy and satisfaction because that's the purpose that we were created for. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.